Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 7th. In today's news, the secretive group Amy Coney Barrett was a handmaid for is trying to hide records of her role. Mike Pence reluctantly agrees to plexiglass barriers in tonight's VP debate. And a long-delayed DHS report says white supremacists pose the most persistent and lethal threat to our country. But first, the big idea. The United States has lost more people to the coronavirus than any other country in the world. We have 4% of the world's population, but more than 25% of its dead. Yet President Trump, in his own personal battle with the virus, cannot even control the outbreak in his own home or office. A surge of new infections inside the White House, less than a month before the election, ensures that COVID-19 will be the top issue. And they've become a symbol of this administration's failure to lead on the pandemic for more than seven months. Trump is back to downplaying the virus today, saying it's no worse than the flu, which is very much not true. Last night, domestic policy advisor Stephen Miller joined the growing list of more than a dozen White House officials to test positive, in addition to the president and first lady. And those are just the ones we know about. There is good reason to believe that several people, senior people, inside the White House have tested positive, but they're trying to keep it quiet. And here's the thing. It didn't have to be this way. For context, Taiwan, the self-ruled island home to 23 million people, reported just eight new cases in the last week. More than a dozen developed countries have reported fewer than 10 new coronavirus cases over the past seven days, including several that have not reported any cases at all. In other words, there are more new cases in the White House than in a bunch of countries. They figured it out. On this president's watch, the United States could not. Now, senior Pentagon leaders are quarantining after a Coast Guard admiral tested positive following a visit to the White House. The September 27th ceremony, held on Gold Star Mothers and Families Day, with dozens of people in attendance, recognized the relatives of 20 deceased service members. But most attendees didn't wear masks or maintain social distancing, and now Admiral Charles Ray, the vice commander of the Coast Guard, has tested positive. He got his results on Monday. The service disclosed it Tuesday afternoon. The admiral began experiencing mild symptoms over the weekend, about a week after attending the event. And his positive test has forced several other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who he met with, into quarantine, including Army General Mark Milley, the chairman. And six states just reported records yesterday for their most coronavirus-related hospitalizations ever. Arkansas, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. A seventh, Oklahoma, reported its highest count of hospitalizations since late July. Tony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, warned yesterday that another 300,000 to 400,000 Americans are going to die from covid unless more precautions are taken immediately. Here in D.C., city officials reported 105 new confirmed cases yesterday, the highest in a single day here since June 3rd. City officials say it's unclear whether the spike is tied to the White House becoming a hotspot. 
And this virus doesn't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent. Congressman Salud Carbajal, a Democrat from California, disclosed last night that he tested positive after interacting with Senator Mike Lee, the Republican from Utah, who was at the White House for Trump's Supreme Court announcement that it's now clear was a super spreader event. The congressman and the senator live in the same apartment building. Now, Trump, who is behaving erratically more than usual since he started taking steroids over the weekend, announced he is cutting off talks with Democrats to deliver desperately needed stimulus to the American people ahead of the election. The president ordered Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin to stop negotiating with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. In a series of tweets less than 24 hours after he was released from his three-day stay in the hospital, Trump accused the Speaker of failing to negotiate in good faith after she rejected an opening bid from Mnuchin in their latest round of talks. Trump's surprising announcement stood in stark contrast with recommendations from the man he appointed to chair the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, who said in a dire speech earlier yesterday that more economic stimulus is critical to prevent our country from plunging deeper into a punishing recession. Trump's tweets sent the stock market sharply lower, as many businesses, households, and investors have been not just hoping for, but counting on, a jolt of fiscal stimulus amid signs that the economy is losing momentum. Trump's declaration appears to kill any near-term chance of new aid for millions of Americans who remain out of work and at risk of eviction. Pelosi and Mnuchin spoke shortly after Trump's tweets, and Mnuchin informed Pelosi that the negotiations are indeed over. Trump said he has instead asked Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, quote, not to delay, but to instead focus full time on approving Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court before the election. According to a congressman who was on a private conference call, Pelosi later speculated to Democratic colleagues that the president's sudden change in position is probably connected to the heavy steroids that he's taking. And Trump keeps shifting his position on how he plans to proceed, which would be consistent with that. After he announced that the talks were off and that the economy is doing great, it's not. He wrote another Twitter post late last night saying he actually supports the idea of more spending before the election and wants to restart negotiations after all. But then he cast out on that again. It's not clear where he stands at this hour. And even though the president continues to be highly contagious and heavily medicated, he's also resisting the White House's efforts to impose stronger safety precautions for the staffers who serve him. The White House offered an informal nod to coronavirus best practices yesterday, with mask wearing prevalent after months of flouting public health recommendations and new internal guidelines for interacting with Trump. But the biggest source of resistance was the president himself, who, despite having just come out of the hospital, was defiant. He wanted to go to the Oval Office to work yesterday. The doctors told him that was a bad idea. He wanted to deliver an address to the nation last night, which aides talked him out of doing. And he's clamoring to get back on the campaign trail in the coming days, which doctors are also trying to talk him out of. Trump announced on Twitter that he's definitely going to fly to Miami next week for the second presidential debate. Several outside medical experts suggest that the president's actions indicate that he is unchastened by his own experience contracting a virus that has killed now more than 210,000 Americans. And Miami's Republican mayor even said that Trump shouldn't come to Miami if he's still testing positive next week. The White House itself has not changed its mask guidance. A spokesman confirms that they're still only recommending but not requiring people to wear a mask when they walk around the building. 
career administration officials and mid-level and junior staffers, not to mention the career household staff, the butlers and the chefs, all say they're scared. They're nervous about coming into work, and they're wary of being next to to test positive. And top Republican strategists are panicking that Trump's decision to announce he's halting stimulus talks, which centered on an infusion of funds for the ailing airline industry, could have significant fallout on voter judgments about who's best to handle the economy, which has previously been Trump's strongest suit. Major airlines have operations in electorally vital areas like Dallas, Atlanta, Phoenix, Miami, and Charlotte. In one sobering development for the Trump campaign, Biden's lead in Pennsylvania has grown to 12 percentage points in a new Monmouth University poll that was conducted after last week's debate. Monmouth's poll last month had Biden up only four points. And Trump's campaign is planning to battle back, to close the gap with a range of in-person events built upon the idea of showing that the president is bringing us to a pre-pandemic normal. Notably, however, that plan was released in a memo that was written by campaign manager Bill Stepien, who is in isolation at home after contracting the coronavirus. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, while Amy Coney Barrett has faced questions about how her Catholic faith might influence her jurisprudence, she has not spoken publicly about her involvement in People of Praise, a small Christian group founded in the 1970s and based in South Bend, Indiana. Barrett has had an active role in the organization, as have her parents, according to documents and interviews that help fill out a picture of her involvement with a group that keeps its teachings and gatherings private. A 2010 People of Praise directory, obtained by my colleagues Emma Brown, John Swain, and Michelle Borstein, shows that she held the title of Handmaid, a leadership position for women in that community. Former members tell us that these handmaids give advice to other women on issues such as child rearing and marriage. Now they just call them women leaders because of the public stigma associated with the term, which was popularized in Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel. Numerous references to Barrett and her family that previously appeared on People of Praise's website have been vanishing. Links to at least 10 issues of the group's newsletters, Vine and Branches, that included mentions of Barrett and her husband, were removed from the site in 2017 in the weeks before Trump nominated her to serve as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Number two. In her first race, Kamala Harris learned how to become a political brawler. When the Democratic vice presidential nominee, who's debating Vice President Pence tonight in Salt Lake City, first ran for public office in 2003, she took on the incumbent district attorney for whom she had just worked. Terrence K.O. Hallinan, K.O. as in K.O. for knockouts, attacked her mercilessly, questioning whether she would investigate corrupt politicians and making light of her multi-year romantic relationship with San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown, who gave her lucrative, taxpayer-supported jobs. Harris, who was 38 years old at the start of that DA race, was relatively unknown. She responded to those attacks by saying she'd be willing to investigate Brown and also Hallinan. It was a punch-you-in-the-face approach that she's honed ever since, and it's come to define her blunt-force, prosecutor-like manner of taking on opponents. People familiar with her preparations tell us that the senator plans to spend much of tonight's debate highlighting differences between Trump and Joe Biden rather than confronting Pence over his role running the coronavirus task force. 
but you can bet there will be a lot of that too. And Pence's team reluctantly agreed last night to allow a plexiglass barrier on his side of the debate stage. The Commission on Presidential Debates said the VP dropped his objections to the plexiglass barricade on his side after viewing the setup during a walkthrough of the debate hall. It was less intrusive than the VP's team had feared. For his part, Pence remained mostly behind closed doors after he got to Salt Lake City on Monday. He had no public events Tuesday, hunkering down to prep for the debate, with the exception of a hike he took with his family. And the White House said yesterday afternoon that he has tested negative for the coronavirus. Number three, a new report from the Department of Homeland Security says Russia is most aggressively trying to inflame U.S. social and racial tensions. DHS's first ever Homeland Threat Assessment also says that white supremacists pose, quote, the most persistent and lethal threat to the country. But while the body of the report makes clear that Russia is the primary foreign threat to our 2020 elections, an assessment shared across the intelligence community, the acting Homeland Security Secretary, Chad Wolf, offered a different emphasis in the foreword, stating that China, Iran, and Russia are all seeking to disrupt the election. That sentiment has renewed criticism from people on the inside and outside experts that the Trump administration is seeking to draw a false equivalency between what Moscow and Beijing are doing. The former acting head of DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, Brian Murphy, accused Wolf in a whistleblower complaint last month of directing him to play down intelligence reports on Russian interference in order to, quote, avoid making the president look bad and also of seeking to modify the draft assessment section on white supremacy to make the threat appear less severe. Finally, let me close today by telling you about Beatrice Lumpkin, who had a big smile on her face in a picture that's gone viral. She's 102 years old, and she wore a hazmat suit, which was designed by her grandson, so that she could go mail in her ballot. The former Chicago public school teacher, who was a steelworker before that, has voted in every single election since 1940, when she cast her first ballot for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This time she voted for Biden. She told our Paulina Fazzoli that it's always important to vote, but she thinks this election is the most important election of her entire lifetime, which began in 1918, before American women were even granted universal suffrage. Beatrice says it's not the most important election just because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But as she put it, because democracy itself is on the line in November. If Beatrice can get out to vote, so can you. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 7th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.